namo tassa bhagavato alahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato alahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato alahato samma sambuddhasa Tang sukang anyatre wa kamehi anyatra akusalehi tamehi nabayitabang. That was uh, a small saying that that happiness which is uh, other or apart from the uh, sensuality that pleasure which is apart from the unwholesome dhammas is not to be feared, said the Buddha. And indeed I I wanted to use this opportunity this evening uh, to, uh, instead of giving a a general talk, to give a specific talk on the process of meditation uh, leading up to jhanas, and I want to give this talk this evening uh, because uh, it's the right time in the uh, retreat. After uh, just over a fortnight, the, much of the external activity has disappeared. The mind and the body should be settling down. The mind should be inclining towards these quiet and peaceful states of mind. And now I want to uh, give a a talk about how one deals with this mind to lead it uh, into these uh, deep states of peace and bliss, these very useful states. (coughs) And as such that many of you who have heard my talks on the subject before will hear much which is repeated, but then again, because these talks are not planned, there will be other pieces, other little pieces of information which you may not have heard before, which will help. And anything which helps one uh, settle the mind down, to let go of the hindrances, to let go of the world of the five senses, and gain these states, these utri manusadhamma, these superior human states, which are worthy of the Aryas, that these are uh, any information is very useful. I was uh, talking in my last uh, discourse about the need for sense restraint. And that goes without saying in this discourse that sense restraint uh, gives one the groundwork uh, for, or gives one the foundation for taking this mind further uh, into a fuller restraint of the senses the fuller letting go of many, many things where the mind used to dwell and going to another place inside the mind, a place of great peace and bliss and a very profound place as well, which gives you great insights into the nature of the mind, what the mind is capable of and how it feels to be in these states and why these states are such, how they come about, it gives one a great insight into the world and it's an insight into a world which you cannot know unless you've been there because much of these worlds, these samadhi states 
are so strange compared to the external world that uh, it's uh, very difficult to describe and uh, those who haven't been there find it very difficult to understand that such states can exist. But one has to start from the very beginning uh, having practiced and sense restraint then there comes a time when one sits down and uh, on one's cushioned stool and starts training the mind. <coughs> that initial training of the mind should begin with uh, what the Buddha called the Idipadas. The Idipadas are the four roads or bases of success or bases of power. This is what empowers you to actually succeed in this process of meditation. And as uh, you all will know, those idipadas are the uh, arousing of a desire for a goal and the maintaining of that desire for that goal, the chanda samadhi. And that's uh, a prerequisite of gaining any success in this meditation. If you do not set yourself a goal, then you will not set up the desire, the movement of your mind to achieve that goal, and there will be no uh, result. You do not get to, to uh, one-pointedness of mind by allowing the mind to wander, on, wander along. Uh, it will never get close. It needs to be directed, to be pointed and that direction and that pointedness of the mind has to be done through a very clear resolution. And the most important thing about this idipada is that resolution has to be maintained throughout the course of the meditation. If you make that resolution and maintain it, you've got a hope of success. If you make that resolution and after one or two minutes you forget what you're supposed to be doing, what you're aiming for, then it's very easy to turn the corner and go backwards or go sideways or waste a lot of time. These are very profound states and they need that degree of uh, effort. Not immense effort, but that constant effort. So you take your goal and you keep it in mind. That's a chanda samadhi, and that generates the energy to achieve the goal. And it generates the, the, invest, uh, the application of the mind onto that goal, and the investigation of dhammas which go along with the uh, desire for success. And just those investigation of the dhammas, the vimanksa samadhi, which is like the uh, investigating and, and Maintaining that uh, just again is demonstrates that the path of samatha is not apart from vipassana. But to be able to gain success in meditation, you have to use wisdom. You have to use the desire, you have to use the energy, you have to use the application of the mind and the wisdom faculty generated through vimanksa in order to gain success. All of these need to be functioning and need to be maintained throughout the meditation. When I define the word samadhi as the sustaining of these things, you can see that if you do not sustain these idipadas, these roads to success, these functions of the mind, if you don't maintain these, 
that is why the meditation does not succeed. One forgets. And so it's very helpful at the beginning of the meditation to set a goal clearly in mind, a goal which is achievable but which is going to test you. And rather than just sit down and meditate and just see what happens, you see what happens, you'll just probably see a wandering mind, especially if you haven't had success in deep, tranquil states before. So you set a goal, and when you set the goal, that becomes a means to generate these idipadas, these four rows of success. And do not be afraid of desiring that goal. Do not, do not be afraid of craving that goal. We just chanted the Dhamma Chakapawatana Sutta, the first sermon of the Buddha. And in that sermon the Buddha talked about the Four Noble Truths. In the Four Noble Truths he talked about the cause of suffering, the second noble truth, the Dukkha Samudhiya, which was that craving which leads to rebirth, that craving which uh, seeks delight ever here and there, which is associated with like delight and lust, that craving <coughs> which is called the uh, karma-dhanha, the craving for the delights in the world of the five senses, the craving for existence, the craving for uh, the annihilation of your idea of self, these are the cravings which give rise to rebirth, the craving for a jhana, the craving to let go of the world of the five senses, is the complete opposite of karma-dhanha. It's, as it were, the craving to overcome craving. And as such, that was specifically said in the suttas by Venerable Ananda, to be the craving which leads to the end of craving. And as such, it should not be feared, but it should be encouraged. Any craving which leads to the end of rebirth is part of the idipadas, it's part of the Eightfold Path, it's the part of the Seven Factors of Enlightenment, because it generates the Eightfold Path, it generates the Seven Factors of Enlightenment. So, when you have uh, a chance to meditate. Make it clear the goal which you wish to have for this meditation and keep that goal in mind. The goal which I encourage for your meditations is to gain the first jhana because that will equip each one of you with both an experiential knowledge of uh, some Uttri Manusatamma, some uh, otherworldly states, and you will also uh, be training yourself to let go of those coarse defilements which we call the hindrances, the coarse defilements which keep you attached to the Rupa Loka, even though that you are only abandoning them temporarily. In the way of the Dharma, you have to abandon things temporarily before you get used to these, being apart from these things, and then you can abandon them fully. Just like a person comes to a monastery temporarily and goes back into the world again, then comes a second time, a third time, until they get used to abandoning this world.
and then they can abandon it fully, permanently. Well, it's important to at least be able to abandon temporarily, first of all, to see what it's like. So this is the goal which I'm encouraging for this Rains Retreat, to gain a jhana. It's the first jhana. So having made that one's goal, then one develops the, the desire, the, the energy, the, the application of the mind and investigation towards that end. The application of the mind, the citta samadhi. The mind is, <coughs> has many functions to it. And one of those functions is mindfulness. You've got to maintain this mindfulness throughout the meditation period. And as I've mentioned many times in our city centre, that maintenance of mindfulness means that one maintains the full knowledge of what you're doing, always, as it were, checking up on yourself, but not on a verbal level, just knowing <coughs> what you're doing, fully experiencing the content of your consciousness from moment to moment. And also remembering, remembering what one is supposed to be doing, remembering the goal which one has assigned for this meditation, remembering to maintain the uh, desire for that goal, the energy, the application of mind and the investigation. Because if one does not keep the map with you on the journey, you'll get lost. You'll need to maintain that map in your mind and that's why it is helpful in order to maintain the goal, in order to maintain the instructions at the beginning of a meditation to very carefully state a resolution to yourself. It is well known even to Western psych psychology that if you carefully make a resolution to yourself, for example, and this is only an example, by making that resolution three times with as much care and mindfulness as you can, then you find that you record it and you remember it for a long time. The more effort you put into making that resolution, the more impression it makes on your mind and the longer it stays in the mind. It's one way of maintaining the mindfulness whose function is to recall the instructions throughout the meditation by making that firm resolution at the beginning. It shows you're being meticulous in this process of meditation and thereby you'll find you will not waste so much time having the mind wander around. So having made that resolution, this is what you're aiming for. Made that resolution to keep these uh, idipadas going. <coughs> you maintain the desire for this state, maintain the energy, maintain the application of mind, maintain the investigation. At that point you can start looking at your meditation object. And the meditation object which you will find the easiest to gain a jhana will be the breath. Uh, you can try other things, but I would encourage to keep the main object of meditation, the experience of your breathing. 
for the reason that that was the meditation object which the Buddha used and which the forest monks in Thailand use. It is the most popular meditation object and there's a reason for that. And the reason for it, it is the, the most convenient way into these jhana states. Other ways may be used, but as I was saying to a few people during the week, if you cannot sustain your attention on the breathing, it's very unlikely you'll be able to sustain your attention on other things. It's the ability of the mind to sustain the attention without wavering, which is the function of samadhi, which leads one into jhanas. Actually, whatever that object is, is not so important as one's ability to hold it. So that one brings up the meditation object. If one is going to use the breath, then there's a couple of tricks which are extremely useful. The first uh, skillful means is to make sure that you are watching the feeling of the breath, not the thought of the breath. Then there is a great difference between experience and what we call a commentary. If you get accustomed in your meditation to uh, knowing and staying with the experience and discarding the commentary, you'll find the meditation becomes much easier. And you can do this throughout the day by discarding commentary, by having a resolution that one will try and restrict this commentary one makes on life and become more attentive to the bare experience of life. Making that resolution to yourself will arouse the mindfulness necessary to stop that inner conversation. You don't listen to it, you're not interested in it, you're more interested in the experience. Because when you're watching the breath, you have to fully experience the breath. Not think about it, not note it, not say anything about it, but just know. And the more simple you can make that meditation object, the more powerful it will become. And that is also one reason why I encourage when you put your attention on the breath to not concern yourself about where that experience or feeling is located in your body. Because if you are concerned where it's, it's located in the body, that just brings up too much body awareness. And with that body awareness will become the disturbances of the body of painful and pleasant feelings, heat and cold, itches and aches and pains, rushes, strange feelings and unpleasant feelings, whatever those feelings are, this physical body is just a mess of painful and pleasant feelings. Just a cacophony of different sounds, as it were, going off at the same time, never giving one any respite of peace. So the quicker one can take one's attention away from the physical body, the better it will be for one's success in meditation. So just know the experience of breath and don't con concern yourself where it might be in this physical body. And you're going to use the experience of breath to take you in to a jhana state. 
And the way you use it is as follows, that the first task is to <coughs> be able to sustain your attention fully on the breath. This is getting the samadhi, the ability to sustain attention on this coarse object of breathing. And this should not be too difficult for every one of you. If you can't sustain your attention on the breath, which is a coarse object, it's impossible to sustain your attention on anything more refined, like what we call the samadhi nimitta, the sign of concentration, which arises later. It will be impossible for you to sustain your attention on any aspect of the mind, such as the candors associated with the mind, enough to be able to gain true insight into their nature. These are very refined things. To be able to fully know them, you have to, as it were, hold them before the eyes of your mind long enough to fully penetrate into their depths. You need the ability just to sustain attention quietly on them, to, as it were, ponder on them long enough to understand them fully. So we have to start with just developing that ability of the mind to sustain its attention on the coarse breath. That is a process which requires a lot of endurance, a lot of persistence, but there are some helpful hints as well. And again, I already mentioned one of them, to remember what you're supposed to be doing to me to make sure that mindfulness is very clear because very often in your meditation the mind wanders off because it forgets what it's supposed to be doing. If there was someone, as it were, just behind you every moment and as soon as you wandered off they reminded you, you've lost the breath. They reminded you, you've lost the breath. Then you find that you would not wander off so far, you'd be training the mind to stay with the breath. No one else can do that other than mindfulness, which you establish through a resolution. However, there is another important uh, trick, skillful means, which can help you uh, maintain the awareness of the breath. And it comes from understanding why the mind moves off in the first place. Knowing the, the ways of this thing we call the mind. The mind seeks for pleasure, for happiness. It seeks to find contentment. And if it doesn't find contentment with the breath, it will find it elsewhere. It will wander away. And sometimes, no matter how strong your mindfulness is, you find that just by trying to force the attention to remain with the breath, just creates so much tension because you're forcing the mind against its, as it were, against its will to stay in a place where it does not want to be with the breath. <laughs> and the way to overcome that problem, the way to make it simple to remain with the breath without needing enormous amounts of mindfulness, without needing enormous amounts of willpower constantly applied, is to make the breath a pleasant abiding so the mind finds satisfaction and happiness remaining with this experience of breath. 
And the way we do that is by developing the perception of a happy breath, developing the perception of a peaceful, beautiful breath. And that's not that difficult to do with training. <coughs> if you can remind your <coughs> if you can remind yourself when you're meditating to develop the perception of joy and happiness with the breath you'll find the mind remains with the breath with very little difficulty. One way of doing that is to develop loving-kindness towards the breath because the loving-kindness towards an object sees only the, uh, the joyful, beautiful, positive aspects of that phenomena. If you can develop that positive, joyful uh, way of looking at the breath, when it goes in and comes out, you'll find that naturally the mind will want to remain with the breath and will not be so interested in all those other sensory phenomena which try to steal your attention away. So one can develop a perception, look out for, develop the perception of the breath as being a beautiful abiding. Once you can do this, you'll find it's easier to achieve the goal of full awareness of the breath. That goal of full awareness of the breath uh, is achieved when the mindfulness remains continuously with the breath from the very beginning of an in-breath right through to its end, noticing any gaps between the out-breath and the in-breath, seeing the next in-breath from the beginning to its end, the next out-breath and the beginning to its end, the next in-breath and the beginning to the end. Breath after breath after breath. You might be able to notice certain stages in this full awareness of the breath. The first stage means you ha is where you actually are holding it with a little bit of force. And at this particular time, the reason why you have to hold it with some sort of force is because the mind is yet to be settled on the breath and the sign of that is that you are aware of other things in the background. That's a sign if you have awareness of other objects, other sounds, other feelings, other thoughts apart from the experience of the breath. It means that the mind is yet to be fully involved in the breath. It's still keeping these other things on the back burner, so to speak, just in case. It hasn't fully abandoned the interest in its extraneous objects. One way of overcoming that problem is to maintain the attention on the breath, as it were, putting the breath in the center of your field of vision, your mind's field of vision. I'm using this metaphor of a field of vision. The mind doesn't see, the mind experiences, but for many we use the metaphor from the world of sight to talk about the mind. So the central object in your mind should always be the breath. And if there are any disturbances, and disturbance means anything other than the experience of breath, including thoughts and uh, orders from yourself, if there's anything else, keep them on the edge of your awareness and keep the mind focused fully on the full experience of the breath and developing the joy 
in this breath and that will keep it centered because you find when the mind wanders it wanders from what was once your center onto one of these peripheral objects and those peripheral objects as it were take over your mind and become the objects of your attention the breath just disappears off the edge of the screen like something falling off the edge of the table into the great void you've lost the breath however if you keep the experience of breath in the center of your screen and keep it there and maintain your attention there it's only a matter of time that all those other peripheral objects themselves will fall off the screen and will disappear because the nature of focusing your attention on one thing is for the the mind to narrow down to, for the field to get smaller and smaller until it just sees what's in the center and what was once on the edge becomes uh, completely out of vision and you're just left with the experience of the breath and this is the way one drops such thing as a body one drops such thing as the attention to sound where one drops such things as the, the thoughts which can roam around the mind uh, if one focuses just on the breath the experience of the breath and maintains that attention on the breath fully for long enough everything else disappears except the experience of the breath and if everything else is experienced has disappeared and all you have is the experience of the breath the full experience of the breath from moment to moment maintained for a long while then you know that you've got the first level which you can really call samadhi you've got a, an object and you've maintained your attention on it and if you've managed to get to that stage that attention should be reasonably effortless because you've already abandoned those disturbances which as it were have fallen off the screen you've got full attention on a coarse object the breath and you all know that in the Anapanasati Sutta that stage is called Sabbakaya Patisangwedi that he experienced the whole body of the breath it's that the whole body, just the breath, fully on the breath fully means there's no room for anything else all other disturbances have not got a door into the mind at this stage and at this stage that it's uh, not all that necessary to develop the perception of a beautiful breath because it's so peaceful just watching a breath from the beginning to its end because the thoughts have been uh, given up because the sounds have disappeared because the body is no longer disturbing you just this much is a great release for the mind the mind has let go of a lot by this stage in fact it's let go of many of the hindrances it's just got a little bit of restlessness left to truly overcome 
So what we need to do next, once we have this stage and we know we've got this stage and we can maintain this stage, it's at this point that we start to practice the fourth uh, practice in the Anapanasati Sutta, which is the uh, the Pasambayang, the settling down, the quietening, the tranquilizing of the object of meditation. Once we have the samadhi on the object, and not before, at that point we tranquilize the object. If you find that you are unable to maintain your attention you know, on a fine object, then make the object a bit coarser. Remember Ajahn Chah once teaching that if you lose attention on the breath and you can't find the breath, just stop breathing for a few moments. And by stopping breathing, the next breath which you take will be a very coarse breath and you find it's easy to watch. You have been breathing, but the breath has been refined, too refined for you to, to notice. And so you have to go to a coarser object. So keep on that coarser object of the breath until you can really maintain a full attention on it. Sometimes this is a bit um, restraining and restricting because very often at this stage you're getting close to very beautiful states of mind and sometimes you may want to rush forward into uh, a samadhi nimitta or rush into a jhana but you'll find if you don't make this state of full awareness of the breath solid a samadhi nimitta once it arises will very quickly disappear again if you do go into a jhana you just go in and bounce straight back again it's because the faculty of the mind of being able to sustain and hold an object for long periods of time enough for the jhana to fully develop and maintain itself has not been developed. The ability to sustain attention even on a coarse object hasn't fully been developed yet. So you have to train the mind at this stage on a full awareness of the breath constantly until you have that very that ability very very underhand you can do it. And if you can maintain the full awareness of the breath all the other objects disappear. Then you can start to quieten that breath down. As, as it were, to allow it to settle until the physical feeling of the breath starts to give way to its mental object. With experience, there does seem to be a physical uh, part of experience and a mental part of experience. And when that physical part of the experience disappears, it reveals the mental part of the experience. You begin to experience how the mind sees the breath, not how the body feels the breath. <coughs> the uh, bodily uh, function of uh, body consciousness disappears the last of the five senses in its very refined form 
This is just the, the eye is shut down, the ear is shut down, smell and taste have shut down, and bodily feeling has shut down, all except just the feeling of the breath. As it were, just the five senses have just got just one thread left, just the experience of the breath, and now you're shutting that one down. As you quieten the breath down, and at this stage, this is where the samadhi nimitta starts to arise. And only if you've been able to maintain full attention on the breath for long periods of time are you able to handle this samadhi nimitta. <coughs> to be able to maintain attention on the breath for long periods of time takes this passive aspect of the mind. I was talking a few days ago uh, in one of the interviews, in a couple of interviews, that one can say that the mind has got two functions. It's got the passive function to receive information from the senses. What we call the function to know. And it also has a function, the mind has a function of interacting with the world. What you might call the function to do. In this meditation, when one gets to this, uh, these refined stages of mind, the main function of the mind has to be just to know. <coughs> the doing function has to be almost dead. Just the last little piece left, which is just going to finally guide the mind into a jhana, where there's the function of doing is completely suppressed and abandoned. Because in a jhana, one just knows but one cannot do. That function of the mind which is active has passed away. And the function of the mind which is just receiving is the only thing left. So remember that the mind has to be passive in these states, to be like a passenger, not a driver. So once one can do this with a coarse breath, one can manage to do this with a samadhi nimitta when it arises. Whatever that samadhi nimitta manifests as, whether it's a light or a physical feeling, I should mention once again that the samadhi nimitta is not a light, it is not a physical feeling, but that's the closest description the mind can give to this thing we call a samadhi nimitta. It's an object of mind consciousness. It is not an object of body consciousness, not an object of uh, eye, of ear, sorry, of eye, of sight consciousness. It's an object of mind consciousness. However, because of its intensity, it very often appears as a light, or just if the mind uh, just perceives its effective quality just as a feeling, but something very pleasant and appealing. And the mind has to be able just to hold its attention on it without moving. To do that it has to be very passive because any action of the mind to interfere, to control, to do, to order, to make will disturb that tranquility of the mind. The samadhi nimitta will disappear and you'll be back either on the breath or you go way back to the beginning of your meditation.
So you have to remember at this point, and this is one of the reasons why I give a talk like this, is to put that instruction in your mind so hopefully at the right time that instruction will appear. You remember and you will act accordingly. And instead of trying to interfere with the samadhi nimitta, you will leave it alone and just hold it in your mind. And you find that you have the ability just to hold it and it doesn't disappear. It doesn't start to change. It's just there and there and there and there from moment to moment to moment. <coughs> At this point you do not need to put the effort in to try and hold it. Because at this point, the effort will come from the mind itself. The samadhi nimitta will always be attractive to the mind. Because this is a peaceful experience, a joyful experience, sometimes a very blissful experience, but a sort of bliss which is not going to disturb the mind. If you've had samadhi nimittas and they are disturbing, it means either that the mind doesn't know how to hold these things when they're very strong, it can't leave them alone. It's not that samadhi nimitta or the piti sukha disturbs you, it's you're disturbing the piti sukha. Just like in Cha's simile of you know, noise doesn't disturb you, you disturb the noise. The piti sukha is never disturbing you disturb the piti sukha. You leave it alone and it remains because the mind is doing this. For those of you who have a great uh, lot of vimanksa, who have a very well developed uh, wisdom faculty, you will notice at this point there is a difference between the jitta and this delusion of self. All of the work which disturbs is coming from your delusion of self, that which thinks it controls and manages all of this. However, the jitta by itself, this is a natural phenomenon. Its nature will be to go towards that samadhi limita and hold on to it and enter into a jhana. It is you in the sense of the mirage which causes the problems. It's one of the reasons why the more one has let go of the sense of self, the easier it is to gain jhanas. Uh, for someone who is an Aryan, whether it's a Sotapanna, Sakadagami, Anagami or Arahat, the higher one's attainments, the easier jhanas become for this very reason. One can let go of this control this uh, control which comes from, from Awija, especially from the Awija, which is the delusion of a self, which is always wants to control, and to speak, to act, to do, and is afraid to let go of that much, simply because it's letting go of itself. So at this point, no if you have a very strong wisdom faculty, investigate this point, not by thinking about it, just by observing and seeing why is it that the, as it were, the samadhi nimitta 
is not stable. And you ask yourself, why is it the samadhi nimitta is not stable? Then, if you can, let go of the sense of self. Just completely abandon all effort to control, all effort to make comment. And be completely passive. Then the jitter will do the work. The mind will go on to that samadhi nimitta where it may appear as a light or a feeling at first, but the nature of that samadhi nimitta is it's like a gateway into the mind. Because you have just come from the realm of the five senses, the karma loka, you interpret that samadhi nimitta with that language. That's why it looks to be a light or a physical feeling. As you maintain your attention on that samadhi nimitta, as you, as it were, go further from the world of the five senses. The samadhi nimitta's, or the perception of the samadhi nimitta changes. The perception of light disappears, or the physical feeling disappears, and you go to its heart, which is just a very pleasant experience, which we call piti sukha. You don't need to try and think, what does piti sukha mean? what is pity, what is sukha, because you will not be able to know the answer to those questions, not by looking at the suttas. The only way you know what this one thing, pity sukha, means as it appears in the first jhana is to gain that first jhana and know that is the object of the mind at this stage. It is the object of mind consciousness. It is the one Dhamma which the mind is aware of. And it is because it is piti sukha, because it is extremely pleasant and peaceful and satisfying, that the mind finds it very easy to gain contentment in that one mental image. And so the mind does the work at this stage you've let go. You've let go not only of the karma loka, of the world of the five senses, you've also let go of that function of, of self which tries to control. Because you cannot do any controlling in these jhana states. And it's a wonderful thing to behold that experience which is beyond the control of mara as Mara manifests as the illusion of self. Mara is blindfolded in these states. The illusion of self which wants to struggle to be, and it, by being it does, acts, orders, controls, manipulates and manages what it thinks is its own existence. That is abandoned. And that's why that by gaining a first jhana you've let go of an enormous amount of the world, of suffering, of existence, of what you know is existence. But at this stage you will still be fully aware because the mind is still there. The mind is knowing. And because the knowing is a very profound knowing at this stage, a very powerful experience are these jhanas. They will certainly impress themselves on the mind. 
enough for you to remember very clearly what those experiences were when you emerged from a jhana after a certain length of time. The mind stays there because it finds full contentment at this stage. It's satisfied with the pity and sukha, with the joy of this stage. However, as I mentioned before, that there is a, a defect in that first jhana and you will notice that after you emerge from a jhana, after you saw you emerge from that first jhana, not in that jhana, you will notice that the defect is that in actuality the mind isn't fully still. The mind is moving towards and away from and towards and away from. It's as it were oscillating around that piti sukha. Because the mind hasn't fully uh, entered into that state. It's still halfway uh, so it's still on the journey into full samadhi. It hasn't fully settled down, it's still wobbling, as it were, uh, echoing, vibrating from what was happening before in the realm of the five senses. The mind hasn't fully settled down. And that wobbling of the mind is what we call vitaka vichara. As the the mind, this is not coming from you, it's not an order, it's not manif- does not manifest as what we call thinking. As a mind does this, the mind moves towards the piti sukha. That's called vitaka. The mind holds on to that piti sukha, that's what we call vichara. And after a while the mind has moved away, and so the mind has to move on to it again. There's a very gentle and hardly perceptible moving to and from this object. But it cannot go very far away. The Piti Sukha remains fully in the mind's eye. So never does it go that far away that the Samadhi state is broken. Never does it go that far away that one feels the body. Actually they do say the thorn of first jhana is sound. And so it will be sound which will be the first of the five external senses which can break the first jhana. But if a sound is heard it means the samadhi of that jhana is already very weak and one is about to exit because of that sound. Within that jhana, within that state, you will be unable to hear what people are saying next to you. Because the mind is fully involved in this piti sukha object. When I say fully involved, I stress that word fully. There's no space for the mind to receive any other input. It's fully taken up with the joy and happiness of piti sukha, obviously. And it doesn't even let it go for a moment enough to notice anything else. These are strange states to experience because it is a mind which, as it were, is very different than the mind which has so many things to deal with in the external world. A mind which has one thing come up to its attention and disappear and something else and then something else, which has such a, such a stream, such a, a heavy load, such a burden of information to deal with. 
And here the mind has just got one very pleasant object. It's the pleasantness of that object which keeps the mind attached. Attached to the Piti Sukha. Do not be afraid of that attachment. It was the attachment which led the Buddha to enlightenment and led many other huts to full enlightenment. And anyhow, at this stage you cannot do anything about it anyway. And this becomes the experience of the first jhana. Later on, that vitaka vichara, that last wobbling of the mind, remember the first jhana is that which is just less than the second jhana. The first jhana is that which is just less than full samadhi, the full one-pointedness of mind on the object. Remember the way that Venerable Sariputta described a jhana in between the first and the second jhana, where the movement of the mind onto the object has been abandoned, the vitaka. All that's left there is vichara. That state is when the mind has the piti sukha fully and it doesn't move away from it. But as it was, as it were, it grasps that piti sukha, it holds on to it, not realizing it doesn't need to sort of grasp and put forth any effort to hold. The mind is doing this, not the illusion of self. At this stage, it's very common that the mind will just let go of the holding and it stays there by itself, according to the natural causes and results. The cause is the, the inner contentment of the mind, just being with this beautiful pity sukha, the beautiful happiness and joy of one-pointedness of mind. And it remains there. It remains there as a solid object, the mind come to oneness, come to a point as it feels. And again, these aren't things that one knows in this state. It's when one emerges afterwards and because the experience has impressed itself on your mind, you can recall it very vividly. As you would say, this is just a simile and it's a very defective simile, but it has some merits. Just as you may remember a very vivid dream, even more vivid are the experiences of jhanas, and you can remember it very clearly after you emerge. And it's on emergence you realize that the mind was just weird in the sense it was fully at one, and it could not move. It was like at a point, like a rock, strong, powerful, blissful, but completely immobile. The immovable, the immobile mind of the second jhana. And you can know these states, and you can know the states afterwards, as the mind remains immobile just on one thing, just one object which remains from moment after moment, the continuity of the mental object, which does not change. Just remains, just one thing, moment after moment after moment, neither expanding nor contracting, neither changing in quality. Just remaining that sameness, the one, what I call the one-pointedness in time, 
of the nimitta, of the sign, of the object, of the mental consciousness. And again, you're just seeing what's possible with consciousness, with mind. The only way you know mind is by knowing its objects. Its objects are what define the mind. And once you know the different objects of the mind, including the samadhi objects, then you get some enormous insights and understandings into what this mind truly is and what it's capable of and what happiness and what suffering are. Once you start getting into these states, then the, you understand what the Buddha meant by the pleasant abidings. He sometimes called these states Nibbāna here and now. And he sometimes called them these states, even though it's not true Nibbāna, it's close. Why is it close? Because it's a lot of cessation has happened. Uh, very often the Buddha would equate Nibbāna with Niroda, Nibbāna with cessation. And here a lot has ceased. By ceasing it's ended, it's gone, it's disappeared, finished. A lot has ceased in these states. And that's why it's very close to Nibbāna. As one develops these states, not only does it give you a pleasant abiding, it also gives you a lot of insight. Not only gives you a lot of insight, that it makes your life as a monk secure. Only when that you have the, the knowledge and experience of the Niramisa Sukha, of the happiness which is apart from the worldly things, can you fully have contentment in monastic life. If you haven't got the happiness of the Niramisa Sukha, or the Nekama Sukha, the happiness of renunciation. Your renunciation will always be a struggle. You may be able to renounce on the surface, on the outside, and appear to be an excellent monk towards all others, but inside, the mind still for yearns for happiness and satisfaction. And you will not be able to stop that mind searching for happiness and satisfaction in the world when it hasn't got any other resource inside. One of the reasons, forget what sutra it is now, when the Mahanama, the Buddha's cousin, came up to the Buddha and said that even though he was Sakadagami, I think, a, a once returner, still that the passions invaded his mind from time to time. And he never felt like fully renouncing. And the Buddha said it's because you, you're still attached to something, you haven't given something up. What's he attached to? What is he attached to is the karma loka and that mind, or sorry, and that illusory self which seeks for pleasure and control in this world. So this is what one has to do and every one of you here can do it. Don't rush, be patient, be persistent and these things will happen. You've all got sufficient sila, morality. You've all got sufficient sense restraint. You can increase each one of these, but it's sufficient. 
what one truly needs is this meticulous application of the mind and doing the, the thing properly rather than rushing or rather than being sloppy. There's a right way to sew a robe. There's a right way to wash your bowl. And there's a right way to meditate. If you're sloppy, then you find that you can waste many years. If you're meticulous, then you find that progress happens. These things occur through natural causes. You are not a factor. You are just an obstacle to the attainment. So get yourself out of the way and allow these things to happen. And then you'll also enjoy the bliss of jhanas. And your monastic life will be assured and your path towards insight will be strengthened enormously. And in fact that with all your knowledge of the Dhamma, or your understanding of the teachings of the Tripitaka, it would be very unlikely that you don't get attainments. As the Buddha said in the Pasadika Sutta, four things can be expected, patikanka, four benefits, anisangsa, there are of doing jhanas, the four stages of enlightenment. So may each one of you gain those jhanas and as a result gain their benefits, their anisangasa. Just like the people who stay in a rains retreat, they automatically get the anisangasa, the rainy season benefits. In so much the same way, I, I maintain, if you practice the jhanas, having got enough knowledge of Dhamma, you'll almost certainly get the anisangsa of the four stages of enlightenment. So that's what I offer you today, and what all I can do now, I'll leave it for yourself. I usually like to spend the next uh, few minutes answering any questions or comments which may have arisen in your mind as a result of the talk I've given this evening. Are there any comments or questions? Yes. mentioning that sometimes, maybe late at night especially, uh, one may experience tiredness and as such that uh, one may use such things as thinking or verbalizing to try and energize the mind, which is true. Uh, however, that I would say here that uh, the achievement of a jhana you know, for you will come at unexpected times and uh, the best times are obviously those you might call them quality times in the day 
There are times when you do feel fit and energetic and clear. And it's at those moments where you should really push to, to gain like, the full jhanas. There are times when you know, the body feels comfortable, the mind feels peaceful. And you get the feeling inside you that you know, the mind is sort of uh, set up. You know, it's possible from this stage to actually get much deeper in your meditation. Uh, those times will not come uh, continuously throughout your day or throughout your week. But when those occasions do arise and you find that you know, the body and the mind are like willing to go deeper, don't waste those opportunities. However, at night time or whenever you're feeling tired, the chances are that you will not be able to get much depth in your meditation. But nevertheless, it's a good time to train the mind to go against that sleepiness, to arouse energy by whatever means. You may not get into jhana from that state, but you are creating noble causes so that another time, so the mind will, will easily get deeper into meditation. What you're overcoming here uh, by uh, saying no to sleepiness is you're overcoming the mind's fixation with the comfort and ease of the body by saying no to sleep because the feeling of sleep is, is an invitation to the mind to go into a comfortable physical abiding. You're saying, no, I'm not interested in the comfort of the external world. So you're resisting, you're practicing renunciation. And for that reason alone, it's a worthwhile thing to do. However, for your first experiences of jhana, they will not come if you're having such coarse obstacles at the beginning of your meditation. Later on, when one becomes skilled in things like jhana, then even if the mind is tired, uh, you may have the abilities. And it's not just the ability of willpower, it's the ability of experience, born of experience, born of wisdom, to be able to bypass that tiredness and go into a deep jhana, and thereby be able to revive the mind and the body. Some of the Meditation teachers, the great monks used to know in Thailand, used to be able to do that. Walking all day, and feeling very tired, would be able to grab hold of their minds with wisdom, just the right amount of force, and use wisdom to go into a jhana, and thereby revive their body as well as their mind. But you need to be very skilled to do that. Does that answer your question? Is there another question on this evening's talk? You're asking whether reading would be an obstruction. Uh, it uh, depends on two things. One is the, uh, the material which you do read, and two is the way you read. Uh, if you read and you practice sustaining attention on what you're reading, putting your mindfulness fully on what you're doing, 
applying yourself to reading and not finishing until the sutta is read, not putting it down even though that sometimes you may feel tired or you may say want to go to the toilet or go outside or something. You can use that reading a sutta as a way of sustaining your attention on something coarse but you're still developing that ability to commit yourself to a task and maintain that commitment throughout. But secondly, the material which you read is important because if it is material which turns the mind <coughs> inwards, which is like talk of things like renunciation, simplicity, contentment, which is all you ever find in the suttas, then you find that that will be inspiring the mind and turning the mind in that direction. And you will find that, that it can be very helpful. And uh, even when I go on retreats, I love to read the suttas. And I do not find them a hindrance at all to samadhi practice, but a great sort of uh, support. It's if, like the mind, it's going to play anywhere in the external world. It loves to play uh, in the discourses of the Buddha. And it gets enjoyment and happiness there, but again it's a, a niramisa sukha. A happiness not of the world, but the happiness in renunciation. You know, you read some of the Buddha's words and they just resound with that renunciation. It's like someone sort of talking about one of your favorite places. And when they talk about it, just the mind sort of leaps and remembers. So, suitors are fine. But use them for inspiration, don't use them for philosophizing or for speculating. Because you can philosophize and speculate and that just creates just more work of the mind, more thinking, more conceptualizing, more proliferating. Which is that sort of thing you like to stop and restrain so you can get these quiet states of mind which are far beyond thought. Quite frankly, that you know that thinking is mostly a waste of time. Because the experiences of these jhanas are very different than you can ever think. Any other comment or question? Okay, I'll leave it up to you to practice. Thank <clears throat> you.